On this episode of Serverless Chats, I speak with Sheen Brizzles about the serverless journey of Lego.com. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 20. Hi everyone, I'm Jeremy Daly and you're listening to Serverless Chats. This week I'm chatting with Sheen Brizzles. Hi Sheen, thanks for joining me. Hey Jeremy, pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So you are a senior application engineer at the Lego Group. So why don't you tell the listeners a bit about yourself and what you do at Lego? Right, so yes, I'm a senior engineer at Lego. Um, I, I joined Lego uh, three years ago. And uh, as part of my role within Lego, I, I, I act as a team lead, I act as an architect, and also I coach uh, fellow engineers on their uh, career progression. So in terms of my career, I, I started way back in 90s, early 90s as a software engineer. I've been through uh, quite a few organizations, uh, both big and small involved with a number of software development uh, projects all the way through. So I joined Lego at a juncture where when they were thinking of moving to microservices. So that's why I came on board uh, with the Lego uh, roughly around three, three and a half years ago. Awesome. All right. So you are like jet setting around the world, telling a story of how Lego.com uh, went serverless, and I've seen you speak uh, at a number of uh, number of conferences, uh, and I and I think it's a huge service that you are doing for the serverless community, uh, sharing this because it is important, I think, for teams to see how other companies are doing it and how other people are implementing these things because it's very new. Serverless is very new, and is, and even though it's been around for five years at this point, there are still a lot. There's a long way to go. Um, so. So I want to talk to you about this idea of the serverless journey at lego.com. Um, so let's start, sort of where are you now? Like where is Lego now with serverless? So uh, within Lego, there are different uh, teams or departments uh, em embracing uh, serverless. So I am with the, uh, the team that focuses on the shopper technology, shopper engagement technology. That includes the uh, Lego's e-commerce platform and all the toolings around that. So we are progressing uh, well with the serverless uh, approach. So as you know that uh, we migrated the, uh, the e-commerce platform onto serverless. So we, you know, we don't stop here or but our journey continues beyond that because now there are new initiatives new developments coming up because we see the benefit of serverless that gives in terms of the uh, the speed or the you know uh, velocity with which we can bring out new features to customers Great. All right. So let's go back to the beginning because this is one of those interesting things where I think companies get to this point where they're either starting their cloud adoption or they're they're running on legacy hardware um, and they say, OK, we need to now make this move. And a lot of people go down that container route, um, but uh, it was a little bit different. So let's start with where, where you guys were. Where, where were you a couple of years ago when you came in there? What, were the, what was the technology? So, so that time uh, all on-prem. 
And uh, so we had uh, Oracle ATG, an old version of Oracle ATG as an e-commerce platform uh, hosted on-prem. And we had an Oracle database uh, talking to um, and the, the platform itself, talking to a bunch of other uh, services within Lego. And at some point, there was an initiative that happened to uh, make it more um, API-based. And even that time, they put REST APIs around, but still it was uh, on-prem and a monolith. But the front-end moved on from uh, being a, a JSP onto a JavaScript-based hosted on Elastic Beanstalk on AWS. That's pretty much we had uh, two years ago uh, around that time frame. So we had, you know, the, the, the number of issues associated with the typical monolith uh, uh, platform, maintaining or uh, releasing um, new features and fixes and things like that. So that was pretty much the landscape we had at that time. And then you had sort of a uh, come to Jesus moment on Black Friday, right? <laughs> Yes. So, yeah. So there are different things. So, uh, so though I focus on that particular incident, there were one or two other um, uh, thoughts that were going on. So first one is the e-commerce platform itself was aging and very old. So we had to move on. And then Lego as a company wanted to reach out to many children around the world. So that means they need the platform to go out and launch the shop and uh, the the availability of the 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 the, um, the bricks and everything to children around the world. So that was the from the business side of thing that was a need. So we need a platform that can uh, provide us that capability. At the same time, we wanted to migrate from the old platform. So. We were not thinking of serverless at that stage. So a typical microservice, put everything in a Docker or, you know, containerize an instance space. Those were the, uh, the different ideas floating around. Then came this uh, Black Friday and we had this catastrophic failure of the platform. So that triggered some of the conversations internally to 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 get to a point that uh, we must decouple things we can't have everything together as a one piece so we wanted to make sure that you know we don't fail just like that if something failed the rest of the platform should be able to carry on and so that's that that that's where things got ignited i would say and started the the business and uh, the engineering team started to uh, discuss and come up with proposals and ideas. So serverless was very much new at that time and no one had any uh, experience or exposure within the team I belonged. So one or two of us were looking at AWS and uh, um, talking to people, attending different uh, conferences and meetups and things like that to gather the idea. Still not decided where to uh, take the leap to. So that was uh, at that time when when we had that uh, Black Friday failure. So from then on, based on the technology 
improvements and the cloud initiatives and the organization wide the, the the need for a digital transformation initiative so all those things came together for us to uh, you know take on this serverless serverless journey did you already decide to move to the cloud like basically you said on prem is not working for us or we need to be able to scale more um, you know, so you, you decided to move to the cloud and, uh, you said you looked at containers. Um, but w- like, what was the thing about serverless though, that you said, no, we definitely have to go this route. Okay. So there was another factor. So as part of the platform, uh, migration or, uh, the upgrades, the bunch of things were looked at. So either, uh, have a, a platform similar to what we had and everything, uh, available within the part of the platform or go the other way around, look for a simple headless API-based platform, and then we can put our logic around it. So we have the freedom to innovate, scale, bring in new features, and uh, all the other capabilities from our side. So that was was kind of the discussion point. Then we chose that, okay, we need the flexibility because we don't want to be constrained by uh, some of the commerce platforms out there. So we wanted the freedom to innovate, freedom to bring on the features that the way we wanted to uh, bring out to the customers. That was a main shift. And that's when we started looking at cloud as a real, you know, Mm -hmm. enabler for us. So, and then with all the, you know, the availability, HA and the scalability and all the other things, and came along with the, you know, the cloud pinging. So that's that's sort of the uh, decision point where we started to focus on AWS cloud, and then came the serverless, uh, uh, the mindset. Nice. All right. So let's. So now you've made this decision. You said, okay, we're we're, we're moving to the cloud. We're we're going to go ahead and, and take the serverless first approach. Um, so what was the process for getting started? Because obviously moving to the cloud is a yeah. big step for a lot of companies. There's security, there's understanding, you know, just the ecosystem and, and what's available. So what did, what did that process look like for Lego? Okay, so at that point, um, so, you know, the, the Black Friday failure happened. Mm-hmm. And that gave us, gave us the opportunity to try out something simple when we wanted to decouple a small part of the system. And that's where we introduced a serverless because not knowing anything about serverless, we didn't want to take a huge risk. So let's, we said, okay, let's try this approach. If this works, we can take it further. If not, we can change course and do something else. And for us, it worked. And from there, what happened was that we started to uh, realize the potential the serverless can provide us. So slowly, the different managed services became familiar to us. So the S3, DynamoDB, and the SQS, and all the different uh, the, the managed services that become part of the serverless ecosystem kind of became familiar. So then we were able to see the opportunities that that would bring us um, uh, going forward. So that's kind of the you know, the time we started. So based on that, then uh, there's, uh, we, we put together a sort of the guardrails, if you, if I may say, sure. so that, uh, when, when, when the team, uh, starts focusing on serverless, we won't kind of debate and deviate from where we wanted to go. 
So that's when we said, okay, let's go with serverless and let's use the managed services wherever available so that we don't need to bring anything else and reinvent the wheel. And then let's use AWS cloud because AWS already we're using AWS cloud and all the, you know, the services and features that we looked at were all there and all the, you know, there's, there's, there was a great community around it, especially in London, there are plenty of, um, and the meetups and the talks and the user groups are all awesome. So that's sort of uh, the initial principles that we put together to move us uh, forward to the next stage. So before we move on, I want to go back to what you said earlier about sort of taking a small chunk of the application or biting off a small piece and testing that. Um, so I, I think that is an awesome way to get started with serverless, especially for large organizations, especially when there is potential um, disagreements, the wrong word, but maybe there's not quite the amount of confidence um, from upper management. So is that something that that the sort of the engineering group or the, the management of the engineering group saw uh, or you were able to do these small experiments and have successes? And that was sort of what uh, built that confidence for you to, to go entirely serverless or to, to really push the serverless mindset there. Yes, that's a very, very good and important point, because when we often look at a monolith, we often get confused. Where do I make a start? Because it looks everything big. But thing is, exactly. we need yeah. to start looking more closely, part by part. So then we will be able to identify as some small entry point into the system that will give us the comfort to, you know, try out something new. And also, when you have the when you work in the organizations, you need you need to prove or showcase these things to the stakeholders in order to get their buy-in. So for that, it's important that we identify a part of a system that is not complicated, small enough that we can experiment with the new ideas and show them show the you know the the proof that it's working and it's uh, you know feasible for us to go forward to everyone around not just the engineering team bring the business stakeholders everyone together and yeah so that that that's very crucial uh, when especially when we start this sort of monolith to uh, microservices serverless journey yeah i love i love that point because again it's such a it's such a huge uh, it, it's such a good way to do it, um, you know, and whether it's just peeling off the the email sending component of your system or something like that, it's exactly. it's such a uh, uh, such a useful way, and then it's easy to have those early successes and and, and prove out, um, especially if you're trying to get adoption. Um, all right, so you you talked about um, some principles or some guardrails that you sort of formed um, around serverless, and so what were those about? Were those sort of about this idea of using, you know, services or managed services when they were there, or was it also sort of just coding styles and, um, you know, and, and, you know, fat lambdas versus, you know, single purpose lambdas, things like that. What, what was, what were those guardrails you put in place? So the initial guardrails are all kind of a high level. So managed services I talked about and the tooling, language preference, testing, those kind of things, because those, I mean, if, if you think of, think of uh, the the lean or uh, you know fat lambdas well, that was too early to think of all those things right sure. so that those things come as part of experience so initially when we start we can set up these sort of toolings and all the different frameworks and etc because often you know you know when you when you have 
bunch of engineers around, there are always different, uh, you know, preferences and uh, choices. So it's important that, uh, you know, irrespective of whatever else happening outside, what do we have? Say, for example, in our case, uh, we could have argued between Golang and JavaScript forever. But when we looked at the skills that we already had, JavaScript was the obvious choice. Then you start looking at, okay, so where is the, you know, trademark between these two or the different language or tools? So then you realize, okay, is it that bad? So you're not making a, you know, completely out of, uh, you know, choice uh, or anything. You're, you're still within the, you know, the preferred uh, tooling set. Similarly, you know, the framework we choose, we wanted to get going faster. So what gives us that sort of uh, capability to move forward faster? So these were the initial uh, sort of guardrails and the, uh, the principles that we uh, set in place. Yeah. So so once you so once you had that, um, then you started sort of forming some teams around uh, these different components you needed to build, right? Yeah. Yeah. So 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 we went away from this typical uh, full stack setup at that point, uh, simply because we didn't have enough AWS or serverless knowledge that we can distribute across different squads. Mm -hmm. So that was an important decision we made, and which paid off really well for us because we pulled the AWS skills and the serverless skills in one team. We started out with. Uh, uh, two or three engineers with sort of the knowledge, then slowly uh, grew the, uh, the the team or the squad. So that was one of the uh, the best things that we did at that stage, because then that particular team was able to come up with uh, the the required serverless uh, services implementation wise, and then the the other teams around they were looking at the GraphQL layer or the front end. So they were able to consume these services and then, you know, work among them to take this uh, forward to the next level. So, so that was one of the, you know, the best things that we did at that stage. And, uh, and then when, when we kind of migrated the shop, we had like a 10 or 12 uh, engineers focusing purely on AWS around technologies. So, how did you make that shift sort of from a DevOps standpoint, right? So you, you had a lot of stuff on-prem, you're migrating things into the cloud, obviously with serverless where, uh, you know, the engineers are probably putting the IAM permissions, um, you know, as part of the deployment yeah. there. Um, you, you know, you want to automate some of that stuff. And I know you, you did quite a bit of automation right from the beginning, which was, I think, is the advice that I would give to everybody, like just take a few, take a few steps or a few ticks and, and, and figure out um, uh, how to do the automation piece because you don't want to configure anything manually when you're launching something to production. But so sort of what was that process for Lego, um, uh, you know, when your team was uh, thinking about automation and DevOps, how did you make that sort of responsibility shift? Okay, so that's uh, partially from the previous experience. So we had uh, in the you know the traditional way we had a different team looking at all the infra and doing all the infra you know side of um, uh, coding and everything, and the engineering team had nothing to do with that. But with this one, when we when we started this um, journey, we we wanted to have that infra team as part of the engineering team. So that happened, but still 
we were in a dilemma how to split the responsibility, whether, whether the engineering team is going to be responsible for this thing or infra team. Now, initially we started off with the infra team, then soon that became a bottleneck for us because the engineering team were able to was able to uh, come up with uh, the service implementation faster, whereas it relied on infra engineer to set up all the you know the scripting and everything else for the for the deployment. So we took some time off and we discussed and said, okay, let's kind of merge these responsibilities. So infra engineers, specialists, they will still have whole certain areas that they will. Uh, work on, whereas the day-to-day, -day, uh, the service implementation and delivery kind of things, the engineering team will uh, start incorporating the, uh, the 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 you know the um, the scripting, so that we don't have this sort of uh, uh, the the blockade, uh, you know, progressing uh, further in terms of the uh, delivery of the uh, services. So these things won't happen overnight. So if, if you don't have the sort of, uh, you know, serverless, uh, previous serverless experience, though, so this will be part of the new learning. So that's fine. So that's how the teams learn and move forward. As long as we are flexible enough to understand and take the approach uh, appropriately, that should be fine. There is no reason why we should have, oh no, no, we can't do that way. We have to have this team doing that and the engineering, no. If we have that mindset, then we won't, you know, progress uh, fast enough. Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I definitely agree. I think that when you're building out serverless teams, if you're, if you have a few people that are working on um, that, that sort of that cross-functional team where you've got people who understand security, people who understand the, the development, and depending on how big the team gets, uh, you know, if you have people who are dedicated to DynamoDB or Kinesis or any of these other things, uh, or can focus some of their skills on that, I think that is a huge, um, you know, that's a huge advantage when you when you kind of put that together. Um, all right, so the other cool thing you mentioned, and maybe you could explain this, because I, I think it's probably a relatively sort of common um, type practice, but you, you call it solution detailing. Mm -hmm. um, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure, yeah. So as I mentioned, when we started, we didn't have uh, enough AWS or serverless knowledge. So uh, I was uh, I was in the AWS at that time, and maybe one or two other engineers coming on with uh, AWS skills. So in order for us to gain the momentum, in terms of engineering the services faster, someone had to provide the details to the engineers because imagine that an engineer coming on board with the JavaScript knowledge with the no or limited AWS side of skills. So that means we need some way of enabling them to use their, you know, the programming skills coupled with the serverless AWS skills. So that's where the solution detailing helps. So, you know, people like me would take a, you know, a small part of a, a system that we are going to architect, then uh, we'll put the architectural picture or diagrams in there and we'll go on detailing each uh, service level. Say, for example, I would put, okay, so this is an S3 bucket referred in the diagram. This bucket is going to be you know, uh, doing these things, we'll have these sort of event triggers for these lambdas, and it will have this um, 
the life cycle policy so we don't need to keep it beyond certain duration or days those sort of things will go as part of the solution detailing so that what that does is for the engineers they can go through that especially when they are new they know exactly what needs to be done then that will raise discussions or questions so obviously that will be a collaborative effort between uh, me or someone else doing the solution detailing with the engineer or engineering team so that way the knowledge slowly gets transferred to them as well so they get um, familiar with these sort of terms and the technologies especially you know you, you talked about the IAM permission and that's a, an important uh, point because when someone starts new on AWS they wouldn't have a clue of what we're talking about the IAM permissions or the grand dot level permissions it's important that the senior engineers or the architects explain them this is the reason and show them these are the ways you need to do and why it's a best practice and all the things so for, for, for those reasons this solution detailing helped a lot one additional thing uh, i do is that when i finish the solution detailing it's, it's, it's like a confluence page is that mm -hmm. i give it to the engineering team or the engineer who will be working on it and say that now you own it yeah if you if you make any changes don't come you know don't, you don't need to talk to me unless you you know change the entire architecture for example yeah. that probably won't happen so small changes you carry on that's your document you keep up to date and then you know uh, go along with it so that then becomes kind of a reference for teams when they do the testing and uh, you know the quality qa teams that can refer that and they know exactly you know what is expected and what is there so yeah and i and i really i really like that approach i know for me um, you know, I've been living and breathing serverless for, I don't know, what, four years now or something like that. Yeah. And every time, I mean, because it, things move quickly, the new services become available. Um, there's new ways to do things. There's new leading practices that emerge and you're, you'll be there and you'll be working on something and, and maybe you have it in your head. You know what you want to do. You're, you know, doing some TTLs in, in Dynamo or you're, uh, you, you're going to make this update and whatever it is. I know I do that. I'm in the middle of writing something and then I question whether or not this is the right way to do it. And if, is there a better way? And so I think putting together sort of a proof of concept or, you know, the, the idea of, of having this de you know, solution detail or whatever, uh, and being able to share that too and kind of iterate on it a little bit before you kind of commit, um, because that is one thing that I really like about serverless. I find myself spending probably 80 to 90% of my time thinking about how I want to solve the problem and about, you know, 20 to, or 10 to 20% of my time actually writing the code that does the solution. Um, so it is really good to think those things through first. Uh, and, and as you said, for new engineers, if you think that stuff through, you know, writing code is writing code, um, and if if you've if you've outlined that underlying architecture, I think that's a that's a great approach. So that certainly will speed up um, you know speed up the learning process for for people new to serverless. Yeah, and also uh, just one more thing to add, and also it kind of sometimes stirs up ideas, new ideas. Say for example, recently I, I, I not recently a few weeks ago I did a solution detailing for a, a particular feature, and in there. I, I opted for the on-demand um, Dynamo backup. So I said, we need to have a scheduler. We need to backup, you know, these many times a day because that was the need. There's no need for the automated backup for that particular uh, data. 
Then uh, the engineer started implementing and one of his colleagues, he kind of got into the discussion and said, why can't we use an existing uh, thing? Why can't we use automated backup? So mm-hmm. I, I, I explained that, you know, there is no need for the automated backup. We don't need to, you know, keep 30 or 35 days backup or anything. If this is a simple service, uh, the data isn't that important. Then the, the, the sort of discussion continued. Why don't, don't we have anything available as part of AWS or something? So that triggered, and I realized that, of course, there is AWS backup that supports DynamoDB. Mm-hmm. So we don't need the sort of the, you know, our own schedule of doing this, AWS backup does it. So that sort of, you know, idea just born out of, started off from the solution detailing, then the discussion followed up, followed up then led to a better approach. Yeah, so, definitely. Yeah. That's a great idea. And and I think the, the, the distinction too, to make, um, it, this isn't like waterfall uh, development, right? We're not designing out the entire application and specifying exactly how everything works. Um, we're just basically pinning down or you're, you're, you're outlining a, a, a good architecture, but the implementation details would still be up to your engineers. Yeah. It's great. Okay. So if I remember correctly from your talk or one of your talks, uh, you had a bit of an awkward start with CICD, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. That is, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's, it's perfect yet. It's still a work in progress, because uh, you know the time when we started, we were in a hurry to you know uh, finish something by a certain deadline. I, you know, though we were doing agile, we had sort of a, you know a, a target to meet. Mm-hmm. So this is one of the areas where we had to do some sacrifice because we didn't have enough engineers or infra engineers to carry on all these things. So this is still a bit of a manual process involved for us. We don't have the uh, end-to-end automated deployment pipeline. So when a PR merge, it gets, you know, goes through the pipeline and gets to the QA environment. So from there on to the acceptance and production is still manual. Mm -hmm. There are a bunch of works happening as I speak to get it more fluent and take it, uh, you know, all the way through. But it's not going to happen anytime soon because there are a number of different, um, you know, stages we need to get through, and even improving the uh, the CI pipeline itself. So it is still work in progress, but we are in a much much better position than uh, when we started um, last year. Well, yeah, and I mean the other thing is is that. CICD and serverless is just hard. It's not. Yeah. It's not as straightforward uh, as you know, just putting something up there and and then and then having your servers, uh, you know, uh, deploying it to the individual servers. I mean, there's so much, so much more with the infrastructure deployment and the infrastructure's code and things like that that have to happen. Um, and then, of course, you know, if you're deploying into different accounts and things like that, I had a whole um, episode with with Forrest Brazil about this, and uh, and yes. yeah, it's just it's complex. Um, so uh, don't feel bad about it because uh, it's certainly it's certainly not the easiest problem to solve. So yeah, exactly. That's why I'm I'm you know in my talks and when I talk to other other people in around conferences, I'm open. I'm say that you know it's not perfect for us. We we still improving, but uh, yeah. That's the that's you know that's the best thing. So you should be able to continuously improve as you move forward. Awesome. All right. So a lot of best practices or sort of uh, I guess lessons learned, right, mm-hmm. came out of uh, this this journey for you uh, and the team at Lego.com. So 
you want to talk about a couple of those best practices and sort of lessons learned? Um, yes, sure. So there are plenty of lessons, obviously. Uh, one area is, uh, I think uh, uh, I blogged about it. This is about uh, lean versus, uh, you know, fat lambda, yeah. how we make the choice, you know. And also the other one is like uh, uh, use the service integrations where available and where possible so that you don't need to always write Lambda functions for everything. Mm -hmm. So, and then obviously uh, the there are a number of other areas where say, even when you have storage, there are ways to uh, make a decision on whether you want to keep the data or you want to um, remove the data. To remove the data, there are a number of ways you can do that. And you don't need to, you know, clog the data there and pay for your storage. Mm -hmm. I mean, DynamoDB has TTL, S3 has policies, and CloudWatch has its uh, expiry, you know, duration. So a number of these things, I mean, these, these are all the lessons learned because early on we didn't have certain things set because no one knew these things were there, but then started to learn about or know about these things. So then they become best practices for us. So obviously you learn something and then you put that into practice as one of the things. So uh, so if I talk about the, the, the lead versus uh, um, fat lambda, that's again came out of our uh, experience, especially dealing with the lambda functions behind the checkout flow, mm -hmm. where everything needs to be fast and crisp and uh, quick because yeah. Yeah, because customers otherwise will affect the customer experience. So we, we tried a couple of options. We tried, uh, we, we, we thought of using step functions and we thought of splitting into different Lambda functions, but those approaches didn't give us the, uh, the, 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 you know, the fast response that we were looking for. So that's one of the reasons why I thought, okay, we need to be uh, open. So there is no right or wrong way it, you choose the approach required for that particular situation. And uh, someone, I remember someone uh, commented about uh, their approach because they have functions they uh, complete in few milliseconds. So mm -hmm. if they had to split into number of different lambdas, they will obviously pay for a, you know 100 milliseconds for every lambda. Whereas a single lambda for them is less than a, you know, 100 milliseconds. So there is a cost implication as well. So, so a number of these different things, as you, as you, as you become more uh, familiar with the serverless, as you, as you gain more experience, you, you start to learn and then put into uh, practice. Um, so what about uh, security? What, what, what lessons came out of that? Security is, uh, as you know, it's, it's a kind of a big area. There are different ways looking at uh, security. So, you know, uh, we talked about the IAM permissions. So initially we had services written with, uh, you know, a wildcard. Yes. Then as part of the code review, uh, PR review, these things will be caught out and will be put in, um, you know, um, corrected and uh, uh, put in right. Then we have the APIs. So, so we have a bunch of uh, APIs, um, API, API gateway endpoints, and how do we secure them? So 
there was an issue with uh, because we didn't have uh, the time or the uh, the, the expertise to uh, put together the client side authentication mechanism in place. So, so for for a while we had to go with the API key based uh, approach, even though that's not a mm -hmm. recommended thing. So, but then we have sort of a, a locking down mechanism implemented in Lego, so that you know the access gets uh, uh, whitelisted or otherwise. Um, so, so that area that is still improving. So, especially the new services that we are now um, working with. So, we have the um, client authentication uh, put in place from the beginning. So, so we, we work with the Cognito ESOPool and uh, the scope-based uh, authentication mechanism. Um, so that is uh, coming in slowly for all the new services, and also will then get applied to the existing. Uh, APIs as well. Yeah. All right. And how did you deal with uh, like logging and tracing and monitoring? Yeah. So, so we do sort of a structured logging that kind of evolved from a simple log messages. So we have sort of a decent level of logging in place. So if we, uh, you know, if you look at the logs, we should be, we are now able to um, trace things through. Then at one point we started, uh, we have a, a monitoring system in place. So we kind of stream the logs to Elasticsearch as well as to the monitoring system. So with the structured logging with Elasticsearch, we are able to, um, you know, go through and identify any issues or engineers work with that. But one area that we didn't uh, focus or we didn't uh, put in place was the distributed uh, tracing side of mm. things so that's why i think i once tweeted that if you're uh, if, if you're starting your serverless journey please you know start with the distributed tracing in mind i mean you can start with the x-ray or bring in a, a third party tool so that's that that's uh, very crucial that gives uh, lots of confidence before confidence to to the team um, so that's that's kind of where we have in terms of logging. But again, this is an area that is improving. The 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 tool that we the monitoring tool that we use, they are also going to come up with uh, um, uh, the enhancements that will provide us some sort of capabilities. So that's also coming along. And also we had uh, uh, we spoke to a bunch of the uh, distributed tooling providers as well. So these are all, you know, still open. So it's an area that uh, yeah, we constantly improving. Well, it sounds like uh, one of the one of the biggest lessons you learned is you can always keep improving, right? <laughs> you, yes. you don't have to. Doesn't have to be perfect the first time around. As long as you you get some of the, you know, make sure there's most of the rough edges are, uh, or at least from a security standpoint, and some of those things. Um, you know, there's a lot of improvements you can make, and it's and it's it's really fast to iterate too. Exactly. The the, the point is, I mean, we say serverless and lambda functions, but when as you start uh, growing your uh, estate, then soon there are a bunch of the things immediately you know swamped right because you don't have the time or the liberty to sit down and make everything perfect so you identify the most important things that will take us to uh, you know deliver your most you know the valued features but then you slowly you know uh, start improving on the areas to bring everything uh, to a level Absolutely. And I think that probably ties into, or a little bit ties into your concept of, of set piece architecture, right? Mm -hmm. Can you explain that a little bit? 
Um, yes, yeah, so that that term, I don't know if you follow um, the football, the not uh, your football, the English football. Soccer. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so that is this sort of uh, play they say often, set-piece play. What they mean is that uh, they, they, they sort of, they, they don't play end-to-end to score a goal. So they, someone commits a foul in front of the goal post or the corner kick and things like that. So then they score a goal. So that they kind of refer as a set-piece play. And I thought, okay, so even in architecture or even in uh, theater or film or even making, a, you know, building a Lego model, or the, the concept is there. So we don't build something from one piece till the end. We kind of build things, group them, smaller modules or smaller pieces together. So I, I, I found that way of looking at the entire architecture and focusing on uh, areas that we work with as a you know, good progressive way of uh, dealing with the complexity. Mm-hmm. So that means with, with the cloud and serverless, we get the sort of uh, the, the, the opportunity to practice that thing. So that means so we can come together with a you know, quick solution implementation then we can kind of run it through. You don't need to wait to get to production to do that because all environments are same, right? You have your dev or test or prod, they're all just AWS environments. So you can basically try it a number of times in a way of in sports, say for example, rehearsal or you know that sort of thing. So you, you, you practice that again and again and make sure that that particular solution is now performant and solid production ready all you need is just take it and deploy it to production. So that means, so so I always say that we need to have the, the vision of the entire architecture, but we need to focus closely on a particular piece at a time. So this is how we kind of, you know, build the different areas and, you know, brought them together. Because obviously the services these days communicate with the events or messages and API calls. So that means we don't need to tightly integrate many things together. So we have that loosely coupled or you know decoupled approach, so that we can we can focus and make make one bit perfect before we you know look at the other thing and slowly then bring together uh, one by one uh, as as the entire architecture evolves. Yeah, and speaking of of sort of. Um decoupled applications or decoupled services so event driven and event streaming that's something you uh, you and the team embraced quite a bit as well right yes yeah so from the beginning uh, we we started using the event driven approach um, we we have a bunch of sns sqs all sort of things but then the team are now looking into the amazing event bridge as you know, that kind of changing the entire landscape. So that's one of the things, uh, uh, as soon as they announced, we realized the value in it and the flexibility it gives. So uh, we we gave to an engineer to come up with some sort of a a POC uh, sort of solution. So I worked with an engineer and asked her to, you know, have these these things explained. So this is how it, you know, the benefits that we gain. So here is how we filter uh, message and set up the routing rule and things like that. 
and the new services as we as we move forward we are um, having the event bridge as a core component event bus as a core component as part of it because as you know that uh, the, the the filtering capabilities are far far better compared yes. to yeah yes and you can and trigger and you can trigger more uh, more services with it ex ex yeah. exactly exactly so yeah so in my in my uh, the patent stock we I talk about the event bridge as well because I see that uh, as uh, you know many already uh, uh, spoke about it's a it's a, it's a cool cool uh, service that we have yeah. Yeah, I love I love EventBridge. I, I just started um, using it in a real project that my latest project that I've been working on for the last couple of months uh, incorporates it. And of course, they just added CloudFormation support for creating custom buses, um, right. but uh, which which is good because this project isn't live yet, and so I can go back and fix that, which I had to uh, do some workarounds in order to get that to work. But so that's there now. All right, awesome. So listen, this is this is I think been super educational for uh, for anybody who is thinking about kind of bringing serverless into their organization. Um, but while I have you, uh, I do want to talk to you about a post that you just put up um, <laughs> called Don't Wait for Functionless, Write Less Functions Instead. Um, so just take a couple minutes. I I'd love to hear uh, sort of your perspective on this, this concept of functionless. Uh, functionless as a term I heard, I think probably in one of the conferences. Uh, it's probably in Helsinki they had a... Um, panel discussion at the end and uh, uh, someone was asking uh, what's the next for serverless and someone said oh it's functionless and obviously at that stage functionless term has been used by a few uh, so then I, I I I started to think about it around that time I was speaking to my friend and uh, the, his, his organization moving to serverless and he was probably explaining a simple piece of architecture uh, he put in place and there was this lambda function kind of in between an SQS and an API gateway. And he said he set up uh, uh, the, the trans, uh, data uh, transporter. And I asked him what exactly it, it, it performs. He said, oh no, it just takes the, you know, the request payload and puts into the queue. And I said, you don't need a Lambda there. I mean, he became uncomfortable, but then I realized that's sort of the situation many uh, engineers uh, go through especially when they come new to serverless, start writing Lambda functions. So that kind of that thought process evolved. And then I realized that there are a number of ways we can reduce the use of Lambda functions. So API gateway being one. And then obviously we talked about the approach of uh, fat Lambda versus mm -hmm. lean Lambda. And there are a number of other areas. And now with the event bridge, where we can avoid having custom Lambda functions written. So, you know, when you explain this to people, they may say that, oh, that's just another Lambda function. Why making so much noise? But thing is, if you look down, you avoid so much of a hassle like code maintenance, uh, you know, security issues and uh, everything, all the integration points and things to, and obviously, of course, depending on the usage of that function, there is cost implication as well. So that's sort of roughly uh, the how I came up with this sort of uh, idea. And I thought, okay, let me collectively put everything out there in a nice, you know, lighthearted reading way so that I'm not hitting so hard, but just conveying the message so that someone reading it will have, okay, so I, you know, something to think about, right? Sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, and I and I I love this idea because I I think things like API gateway service integrations, um, they're they're not a silver bullet. I mean, obviously there are a lot of things you still need Lambda functions for. If you have business yeah. logic, then yes. Lambda functions are, are are needed, but sometimes if you're just moving data around or doing some transformations, even there there are ways to do that without even touching Lambda, um, and it reduces a ton of complexity, right? It it makes your architecture a little bit simpler. I do find that when you start doing some of these integrations or service integrations, uh, that it becomes a little bit more black box, and the exactly. observability isn't quite there. Yeah. Um, you know, so that can get a little bit nerve wracking. So I I know for me, I I love using Lambda because I, I can log everything. I know exactly what's happening. Um, but at the same time, there's a lot of reliability and retries and resiliency built into the cloud for you already. Um, yeah. You know, and the more you lean on that, the less sort of technical debt and overhead that you have to worry about. So yeah, exactly. Um, so that's two things. So one is uh, so we don't need to worry about say cold starts, which is a good thing. But then you don't know exactly what happens inside. So and that's an area where AWS needs improvement because velocity template, you you know you know the the struggle getting that right and yes. you know making yeah. it perfect. That 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 part needs you know improvement drastically. So yeah, so that that that's the other side. But uh, if you are just shifting data and simple things from you know one place to other, and if there is a way not using Lambda functions, then please don't. That's Awesome. All right. Well, I'm going to end this with something that uh, Forrest Brazil said at Serverless Conf, which I thought was uh, quite clever. He said, most people have been saying that serverless is Lego, and now Lego is serverless, which I think is uh, is brilliant. So good on him for that. Um, but again, Sheen, thank you so much for being here and you know going all over the place, telling the story uh, and just sharing your knowledge with the uh, with the serverless community. Um, if people want to find out more about you and what's going on with uh, Lego.com, how do they do that? So, so obviously I'm on uh, Twitter, so at Shane Brussels, and also we have uh, the Lego engineering blog channel on Medium where I um, I'm, I'm trying to encourage engineers to put more out there. And um, that's another place. And, and also, um, I share the, you know, the journey experience around. And also, there are other engineers um, now taking up and uh, spreading the, uh, the the knowledge around. So, so that that that's sort of the ways we can we can communicate. And uh, obviously, you know, um, the you know the tech community is growing. So there are. You know, a number of ways we can we can get in touch with and learn uh, from each other's experience. Awesome, and I'm sure I'm sure you'll be speaking at a conference near someone soon. So, um, so again, awesome. I will get all this into the show notes. Thanks again, Sheen. Thanks a lot, Jeremy. Pleasure to talk to you. That's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Sheen Brizzles for being my guest this week. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 20. For more serverless chats, be sure you subscribe and rate the show in iTunes, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast apps. You can also connect with me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you're interested in serverless and want to discover all the great new articles, use cases, and latest innovations from the serverless community, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week. Thank you.